Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. My name is Enid Portuguese, and I'm the Communications Director at the Foundation. This event recording is from our May 17 Masterclass with Courtney A. Kemp. She is the creator and showrunner of the Star's original series, Power, which premieres its third season on July 17. Moderated by Deadline Hollywood's Dominic Patton, the conversation follows Courtney's start in TV writing, which was on the half-hour comedy The Bernie Mac Show. That's where she discovered that she just couldn't write funny, as she says in her own words. She moved to hour-long legal dramas such as Greg Berlanti's show Eli Stone and then to The Good Wife before creating Power. We really came away from it inspired by Courtney's no-nonsense approach to writing for TV. She encouraged the audience to view writing as a trade as much as a craft and to really hone your skills, whatever they may be. She also showed some clips from season two of Power as examples of what makes the show so unique. I particularly love the way it handles women on the show as characters. They're strong, but they're flawed. I don't know, if you haven't watched it, we highly recommend you binge seasons one and two before July. As always, you can see what events we have lined up for the next month on WGFoundation.org. So without further ado, here's our master class with Courtney A. Kemp. How are you all doing this evening? Thank you so much for coming out. I know you always feel like a talk show host, like, how are you all doing this evening? No one ever says crummy. But I hope you are doing crummy because I think this is going to be a great night. Um, how many of you are power fans? Exactly. So you're all getting ready for season three in July? Exactly. Well, I'm not going to waste your time because none of you paid to see me, and I know that perfectly well. Courtney is, well, as was said in the introduction, someone who's been the rare person to make a transition from half-hour TV to hour. When, when Power debuted on Stars in 2014, it was, and she just once said this to me, it was a show that nobody knew about, and then it blew up. In the season two debut of Stars, it went up 209% from its season one debut. Those numbers have continued, and I'm sure we're going to see such figures like that for the season three debut. So, you already know the story. So, without me telling you anything more, ladies and gentlemen, Courtney A. Kemp. And we're going to show you some clips later, too. You know, it's the Writers Guild, but, you know, it's a TV show, so you get the best of both worlds. So how are you this evening? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk a little bit about the show. Before we talk about your career and your history, let's talk a little bit about what was said in the introduction, that transition from half hour to hour. Um, that is an extremely rare transition. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's rare because, in part, once you're agented, your agents decide you're a certain product, and then they market you as that. So you were Diet Coke, now you're Diet Coke. And we're going to market you to people who, who buy Diet Coke. Um, when I left the Bernie Mac show, I was fired, and I'll get to that in a second. But <coughs> when I was fired from the Bernie Mac show, um, the place that I was, I went in back into the staffing season pool. Can everyone hear me okay? Um, and they, there was an offer to go have a meeting on George Lopez. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to bounce from, um, from comedy to comedy because this isn't my strength. So I wrote a one-hour spec, and that one-hour spec got me uh, my job on Injustice. And then the Injustice job obviously led 
to working for the Kings again on uh, The Good Wife. So um, for me, getting fired from the Bernie Mac show was like the best thing that ever could have happened. You know, it's rare because people often, when they talk about that, uh, when they, in America, we don't talk about failures or, 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 or cutbacks or drawbacks. We just kind of leap from success to success. You know, do you think in a room full of writers and people who, have, who obviously try to moving ahead in their own careers, what do you think was the thing that you learned from that? Well, first of all, I'm not funny. So I learned that. You know, that's untrue on every <laughs> level. Oh, uh, well, the kind of funny I am is the funny that Ghost and Tommy are when they're together. Like, that's, that's sort of, you know, that, that kind of funny. Um, but the funny... You know that's funny. Yeah, well, it Okay, can, let's yeah. just be clear. Again, again. We agree Courtney's funny. Yeah. But um, I wasn't the kind of funny that was like, here, tell a joke. Here, you know, we need a button out of this scene. I was never good at that, and that's one of the skills you need. And one of the things I will talk about this evening is the difference between talent and skill. I think there's a really, really big difference between those things. And I, I talked to my writer's room. Um, some of my writers are here tonight. Hey! And, um, hey! <laughs> um, and, uh... Bask in it, ladies. Bask in it. <laughs> Uh, you this could be you one day. Um, but the, uh, the one of the things I talk to them about all the time is as a writer, your talent is not enough. You're, you need to hone a skill also because it's a trade as much as it is a craft. Um, but I was not, you know. What do you mean by that it's specifically? Oh, it's a trade as much as it's yeah. a craft? Okay, so what I mean is uh, let's say that I, uh, I am an architect. Okay, and I like to build houses, and I like to build houses however I want. And then I have a client who's paying me and says, you know what I really would like? I would like a tutor. I better, better know how to build that tutor, right? I mean, it's if I want that money. Mm -hmm. um, my skill is that I'm a legal procedural writer. That's mm -hmm. my skill. My talent is that I can write other things, and I love to write other things, and I come up with all si sorts of things, and I'm interested in sci-fi and action and all sorts of other genres, and I love writing them. But if I lose my job and there's a spate of legal shows that come out next year, that's where I'm going because that's my skill, mm -hmm. and I know I can execute that well. You need to have the things. When you're talking about staffing season and staffing, you need to have those things, and those things will always be helpful. If I end up in an overall deal somewhere and you know I don't have my own show and I develop and it doesn't get picked up, they say, well, we need you to go on, be a co-EP on this legal show. I got that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or this procedural. I now, got when you, that. When you staff up for, for power, do you say, okay, I need a person who can do that. I need a person who can do that. I need a person who can do that. I I need everyone to muck in, but I need to have someone who's like you, who's there. That's my legal procedure person. Absolutely, but it's actually interesting. Um, I've had mostly the same staff since season one. I've been very lucky to retain people. Um, I try to be a good boss uh, in a lot of ways. I try to do the things that I would have wanted done to me or done for me. That's usually the hallmark of a good boss. <laughs> we try. I don't always because do we it. all learn that at one point from having the bad boss. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I had a few. I'll name no names. <laughs> Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, there are people in my writer's room who are better at different things. It's about the mix. Mm -hmm. And every single one of those people is different from me. There is no Ivy League black girl in that room because I already got that. I got that for you for days. I don't need to, and it's going to go through my computer eventually anyway, so I actually don't need to reproduce myself in that way. Instead, there are people who are very, very different from different parts of the, of the country, different, uh, just everything different. I want different perspectives. Now, let's go back to, to what you just mentioned. Let's talk a little bit about your earlier career mm -hmm. because, and hope springs eternal for on this side of the, of the chairs, you started out as a journalist. I did. You wrote for GQ. You wrote for people. So let's
let's talk about that. You, you know, you as a journalist, and where do you, what those skills were you thought you brought to television as you made that transition, and how did you make it? Oh, okay. So how I made it, quick story, I wrote an article for GQ about interracial dating. It was basically how to date a black woman. Um, and uh, I was very young. I was 24. And um, hello, sir. <laughs> you know I'm about to clown you for being late, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I see you brought friends. Um, <laughs> You only get a pass on that because your book was there, my man, all right? You're taking a lot of notes tonight. <laughs> all good, all good, all good. Anyway, so... Um, I'm just Why do I detect another GQ article coming out kidding, of this? Just How to really piss off a black woman. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, such a, it's like such a long list. All right, so... Um, uh, no, you can't touch my hair, is the so uh, basically, I, I say that too, by the way. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I, I had uh, written this article, and um, there were these two writers, um, Albergini and Chesler, who now uh, run Awkward on MTV, um, who wanted to make it into a TV show. And I met them, and then we tried to develop something, and we didn't, it didn't end up working. The funny story about that is we pitched it at HBO. Um, at the time, my current boss was running HBO, so it was actually quite funny. Um, but uh, that is how I got into TV. I realized, oh, this is what I want to do. You know, I'd always wanted to be a professional writer, but I didn't know how to get paid doing it. Um, so that was what happened in terms of going from journalism to this. Then I took the leap of faith. I moved to L.A. with no job. Um, and I had, did have an agent, but I had no job. And um, I was very, very lucky I moved in June 16th, 2004, um, and in August, I had specced a Bernie Mac, and in August of that year, I went, uh, I went in, in July, late July that, that year, I went in and I pitched them a couple of ideas for a freelance, and they ended up hiring me on staff. Now, just before you go there, I mean, uh, whenever people talk about getting into the industry and, and moving forward in the industry, always the issue of the spec script. You gotta write a spec, you gotta show people you can do it. Do you think that's still as important now Unfortunately, people are encouraging younger writers to write pilots, yeah. and it makes me so sad because it's not what I'm hiring you for. I'm hiring you to write power. I'm not ri hiring you to write your own script. I can't tell from your characters or from, your, uh, from what you've done in that pilot whether or not you can do the job that I need you to do. Um, I think the spec script, uh, and what I mean by spec script in this case, is uh, a script that you write of an existing show. I think that is the most important thing. And when I'm interviewing for younger writers, that's what I ask for. The, my worst nightmare is when I am looking for a staff writer or a story editor and someone sends me their feature. Uh. I'm just like, I'm not reading it and I'm not gonna meet them. So that's that. I just, I'm not interested in your feature because that's not the skill at all that I'm hiring for. And I'm not really interested in your pilot because the truth is, I, I really don't think you have the skills yet to, to create a really great pilot structurally. Mm -hmm. You might have some great ideas, but your structure's gonna be off, and you're not gonna know those bounds. So I, I, there's been a whole movement to have people write uh, yeah. pilots at a very young age or when they're first breaking in, and I, I'm against it 100%. Well, I mean, and that's kind of why I asked, because I think that as that trend has happened, I think that that's why in this great gold, new golden age of television, we see so many great shows like Power, but we also see, and you know, the upfronts are happening right now, all those shows are gonna be carcasses by, by next November, mm -hmm. because in many ways they weren't thought through properly and the skill set wasn't there. I mean, I think that one of the things that's very strong about Power is, coming from you and obviously Curtis has has a real life experience which is rich beyond the the, the mint mm -hmm. but is that you have 
the skills, like you put emphasis on skills, like let's have beats here, let's have arcs here, let's have some drama. I remember, I remember you once saying to me, you know, when you first joined Stars, they were like, well, let's take it slow, the use of Sopranos, ha, model, ha, 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 ha. and you were like, no, let's just turn up, like move so, this thing along. No, I, I mean, and I said this to you before, I think people have a rewind button now. Yeah. If they miss it, they'll go back. You know, I'm not worried about that. I want you to be, I want you to be really satisfied by an hour of power. I want you to be, you know, full up and be talking and be interested and not be like, wow, that was a really interesting think piece. I won't, I won't mention it, but there are certain shows that I think get lauded a lot um, for just being a nice, cozy place to rest your head. That's not power. I mean, I do something different. If you like that, that's great, but I, I'm not in that. I'm, in the, in, in, I'm interested in entertaining you so much you're about to throw up. You know, that's what I'm really interested in doing. Courtney, the term is urgency. Yes, the term is urgency. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, the term is, to me, it's actually cannonball. Mm. It should feel like you start power and you're like, oh, God, what's going to happen next? You know, every single moment. Now, to use your phrase, let's hit the rewind button a little bit again here. So you work for Bernie Mac. You leave Bernie Mac. You go, Eli Stone. You're, you're on Good Wife. Yeah. Now you, ha you have this opportunity with your own show. Mm -hmm. So how did power come to you and how did it get to stars? Okay, um, I'll do this quickly too because this is, you know. No, we got all the time. Oh, okay, they, right. They're not going anywhere, okay, trust right. me. Um, the we'll order pizza if yeah, we have to. Yeah. The power <laughs> thing happened because um, uh, I had, my father died in 2011 and um, he was very image conscious. He was very much all about um, look. Uh, he was in advertising. <laughs> So he was very much into the idea of perception is reality. Whatever people think of you when they see you is actually the real of what you are. And it took me a really long time to learn how wrong he was, but that's how he lived his life. Um, so that closet that you see of ghosts with all the suits and him getting dressed and all the ties, and that was my dad. He was very, very much invested in that. Um, he also was born with, uh, he had nothing. You know, he and his sister used to dance on the street for extra coins. They, uh, they were kids in Buffalo, and my grandparents had been sharecroppers. They moved to Buffalo to, to work in the plants. And, um, you know, great migration, blah, blah, blah. But my dad was, um, you know, he was, he was very proud. He was the first black man to graduate from Amos Tuck Business School at Dartmouth. He was very, um, and, and very intense human being um, and very focused on achievement. Um, I was not permitted to come home with anything less than an A. Uh, you take that and you take 50's story, which is the story of basically coming up with very little parenting. Um, his mother was murdered when he was eight. His dad was absent. Uh, and uh, he, had, uh, his, he was raised by his grandparents. Um, and then it, he was just in the life. And then he got shot nine times. And, you know, it, it's, there's this thing. And he always, he wanted to get out. He didn't want to live that life. So we take those two people, you put them together, and that's where you get power. I needed to write about my dad. Mm -hmm. I was working on something else that was a little bit action-packed and um, fast-paced. He and Mark Canton wanted to do a music-driven uh, show. And then it's not a, I met you at Schwab's. It's CAA put us in a room together, and then that's how that happened. Now, as that, as that experience started, what were your expectations going in and, and, and working on this and creating it? I'm really lucky that I spend a lot of time trying not to have expectations. Um, that's a difficult... Luck diff might be a, a, a also a use of the word smart in this case. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say smart, but I know that having expectations when they get disappointed does not work for me in my life. Um, so I went in and I really had to do it piece by piece. I had to go, okay, I'm going to pitch this. Okay, I'm going to write this. 
I'm going to outline it. Okay, I'm going to write the script. Okay, they asked for a second script. I had to do everything piece by piece. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be, I couldn't go from, wow, they said yes, I'm going to have a meeting to, I'm going to have a show on the network. You know, it's not real. Mm -hmm. um, 50's the opposite. 50 believes that everything he does is going to be a huge success. So it's really interesting. Our I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> but, but our relationship is really interesting in that way because I'm so pessimistic generally. I'm a writer, for God's sakes. We have it's true, guys. Yeah, I mean, Look at them. There's lots of nods over in the writer yeah, gallery. Yeah. There. I mean, I don't know. If, if those of you who are writers who are happy people, I don't know, I don't know a lot of you, but you're happy. Good luck. I had uh, six index cards. I am much better extemporaneously. So my index card said Ghost, Tasha, Tommy, Why Me, and Theme. <laughs> and so that was it. Um, and that's the most important thing I can tell you guys when you go into pitch. It's not just about the story and the characters, it's why you? Why are you the person to tell this story? In my case, I'm obsessed with passing, mm -hmm. which is like that's my great, you know, my great thing um, is about passing. Uh, but I also really wanted to tell the story for my dad. And because I wanted to tell the story about my dad, I was the only person. So I, I can always go back to that if, at the end now, of the day. Now, if you were, looking back now from that, and what, what, what was that in 2013? I guess. Early, I guess, early yeah. 2013? I'm, I'm looking at my stars folk to see if and they I, remember. I um, feel like they should be holding up something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, when, you did, when you did the pitch with stars and, and you got the green light, now looking back, what would you have done differently in that first pitch? Well, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but you say that, and you turn it into a joke they all laugh at. Yeah. But you talk about how like, your expectation was, okay, f now I've got this, now I've got that, now I've got this. I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, uh, honestly, I, I was prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew what I was talking about thematically. I knew my, you know, I was ready. I was ready. So, no, there isn't anything I would have done differently. What I would have done differently um, when I went to FX because mm -hmm. I pitched the show at Showtime and they passed and that's a story that I'll tell you all privately if you want to know but not something I want to talk about publicly necessarily but the, um, the, when I went to FX the reason they passed in the room was a very specific reason and it was something that I had not anticipated and it's worth sharing here um, they had Sons of Anarchy on the air at the time and so I was pitching another drug show and they were like, well, how is this different? And it's a very different world, different characters, all those things. But, but it's a very valid question. But it's a valid question. And it was like, oh, this is an interesting thing. And that's a combo platter of your agents being like, okay, if we're going to sell it in this marketplace, this is what it yeah. is. And you also going, okay, how do I show them this is different? And if I had gone in now, knowing now, knowing what I know now, I would have gone in with a diversity angle. Hmm. I would have said, this is what you're missing on your network. Yeah. And then that would have been different because what they heard, and to, to their credit, they didn't hear it as black show. They heard it as drug show, yeah. which they already had. Um, and so that was, would have been a smarter move well, in that case. I mean, it ended up where it was supposed to be. You know, so. now, now, to that end, as you first season comes out, let's talk a little bit about that creative process of setting it up. Um, you know, there's the, the old thing that when you go and you create a show, you kind of assume you're going to, you work with the idea you'll have five seasons, you get what you get, but you have an idea like, this is a story I'm going to tell. I'll assume to some degree that that's the case here. But as you went into that first season, how did you and Curtis sort of come to some of the stories? How do you develop the process? How do you find the story that is the story of Ghost, that is the story of Count? Well, the original version of the outline, uh, Ghost was uh, an, al um, an alcoholic in recovery. He was a drug dealer in recovery. 
And I ended up, ha uh, Chris Albrecht, uh, my boss, was like, eh, take that out. And I'm like, I don't know how to take that out. That's the show. Um, because I had conceived of it as a 13-episode show and, you know, 12 steps, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he took that, he was like, take that out. And I said to my agents, I can't, I can't, I'm done, ah. And um, I'm very overdramatic. And, um, <laughs> and then I, I did it anyway. Uh, in terms of the Curtis part, the way that works is I get on the phone with 50 and I ask him a question. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, so if I want, like, what is this part of this world? And then he just talks. And if you're friends with 50, what you know is that he will talk to you for two hours straight on the phone, like just solid. So I just get on the phone with him and he talks and this is the answer to your journalism question. Thank God I was a journalist first. Mm -hmm. Because I know how to take notes, I know how to ask the follow-up questions, I know how to push him into the next thing, and I know how to listen. And he'll always say in interviews that Courtney says, wait, 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 wait. Courtney always says, wait, 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 stop there. Because I found it. I found the story that I want to tell. Mm -hmm. um, he was really, really uh, focused on talking about Tasha mm -hmm. he was really focused on how we created that character the idea of the of the sort of the Bonnie to Ghosts Clyde he was really interested in that and and the idea of that um, that ghetto helpmate why um, because he felt like that woman you hadn't seen that woman in yeah. her real like she hadn't really been depicted on TV um, he felt like she he had never seen her before Interesting. Um, and then Did you agree with that? I I agreed with it in the sense that I knew that the woman that I was going to be talking about, the woman who actually was a wife and not a wifey, mm -hmm. was different. And so because of that, I, I had my specific view, which is like, this is Mrs. St. Patrick, and she gets everything that comes along with that. Her level of security is such that when he says jump, she doesn't say how high. She says, well, is it the right idea to jump right now? And I, I really wanted to have that, so he and I came together with that. Now, you, you know, you've talked a lot about Chris Albrecht. You've talked, how, how has, it feels like you've had a good collaborative experience with stars. Um, I thought there was more to the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had a wonderful collaborative experience with them. The thing that is great, I think, about uh, the mutual respect with, between myself and my network is that we both know what we don't know. So I don't know how to make t TV. I never did that before. I mean, I wrote TV, but I didn't make TV. I didn't show run. So I was uh, very honest about, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you guys help me? What, how do you suggest I go about this? I wasn't so ego-driven about, like, I know, I know, I know. So they put you through Showrunner 101? No. I, I, took, <laughs> I took the Showrunner training program in this room. That's how that happened. Uh -huh. But I was able to ask a lot of questions. And then they knew what they didn't know, which is they didn't know this world. And they didn't know these people. So when the, I got a note that was like, hey, so this whole scene where this woman um, wants to touch Tasha's hair, is that a thing? And I was like, it's a thing. And they're like, OK. You know what I mean? Um, and I had a conflict with Chris very early on. He wanted, uh, very specifically, he wanted Greg, the Greg character, to be, um, to be equally as inappropriate for Angela as Ghost. Mm -hmm. And I said, they can be the same kind of man, both attracted to violence, one in law enforcement and one in crime. But Greg needs to appear, at least for the first season, like he's the right call, as opposed to Greg, a ghost being the right call. And Chris was like, I don't get it. Why would she reject that guy? And I'm like, because we do. That's what we do as women. We have an appropriate partner that presents himself and we say, no thanks, I'll take the guy who's more exciting. Mm -hmm. I'll take the guy who's sexier. I'll take the guy who's more dangerous, because we're idiots, we do that. Men, men 
I will I will confess and get thrown out of the patriarchy tonight. Men do it as well. Yeah, you guys do the hot, but you guys do the hot crazy accent. It's not just the, it's not just the hot bod. It's it's also it's the it's the wild and crazy. It's the. Oh no, I said hot crazy access. Yeah. It's it's like it's as much as you know, you like you'll put up with a certain amount of crazy for that attraction and it's fun. It's the movie Something Wild, right? Uh, to some degree. Yeah. Or something wilder. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Um, <laughs> so um, I think that that's that's the thing that's been most I think. Um, really most satisfying is that I have had very, very few conversations with them where they say, well, we don't think the character would act that way. Um, they don't do that, which has been really nice because my experience of broadcast is not that. Hmm. And um, when you create someone and you give birth to a character, it is always enervating to have someone say, well, I don't think they would do that. And I always say, well, they would because I wrote it that way. <laughs> um, and th that goes for everybody, you know, whoever that is. Um, but... You know, I think uh, they've been really, really respectful and supportive of the decisions I've made with these characters. Well, let's also be honest. They, they can't be unhappy with the numbers that you guys are bringing in either. I, I don't think so. I don't think they're unhappy about it. Uh, but, you know, um, that's something that goes along with the, the philosophy the, of not being results-oriented. I tell the best story that I can, and I hope the people show up. Mm -hmm. But I can't make them show up. So. Well, you know, as we talk about that, we have a couple clips from the show, and I would, would like to show this first clip. Do you want to do you want to set this up a little bit for us, Courtney? Oh, sure. Uh, this is um, episode two hundred five. Um, it's Angela and Holly. Um, those of you who are familiar with the show, um, hello. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, those of you who are familiar with the show. Uh, we call this uh, this particular scene in my writer's room, you dumb bitch. Um, but it is uh, an incredibly satisfying moment for us as storytellers. And um, after we run the clip, I'll explain why. Yeah. Let's take a look. Yeah, I think we need to get up. Tommy's not ghost. I saw your face, Holly. So I know you already know this. Your boyfriend, Tommy Egan, is a major drug trafficker with the street name Ghost. I remember you. You fucked James at Truth. What? Up against the wall in his office. Well, he's cheating on Tasha with you. Okay, James St. Patrick doesn't have anything to do with this. Is that what you told them? You convinced those fuckheads that Tommy is Ghost. You're protecting James. No, 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 way. I... Oh, wow. You didn't know. <sighs> you dumb bitch. You're the one sleeping with ghosts, not me. <sighs> I want out of this. And I want Tommy out of this. Yeah. Yeah, you make that happen, or I go in there and tell your partners that you're fucking the real ghost. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I certainly get why you call it that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's actually, that's one of my favorite scenes from season two. And, uh, and, me too. And, and because I think it's, it's, it's so... It's so interesting when you see a show that I, and, I, and, and you know I think this about power, that's so well-crafted. It goes to you and all of you guys, too. And it's so well-crafted, but there's, there is, 
it's kind of a scene that like it just epitomizes the show, and it's not the guys. No. It's the ladies. That's what's so great about it. Well, thank you. Um, the things I wanted to talk about with this scene are a few that, that make it something that I'm really proud of. Um, one, we had contrived to keep these two characters apart. Uh, as long as possible for this reason, because the two of them together, this revelation would have to come out eventually. Um, there's something that I preach constantly in my writer's room, they're all sick of hearing me say it, which is you have to play fair with your audience. The audience all saw Holly see Angela and Ghost have sex in episode 104. That had its own story in the first season. But when it comes up here, it is, um, it's really satisfying because the audience goes, yeah, we know she knows that. They don't, they don't say, wait, how does she know that? They go, whoa, we totally know. And they're, they're, they're sort of, it's a great cathartic moment because um, you're with both characters. The second thing is, um, this is a scene, all the scenes in the show, for the most part, we try to construct so that both characters are correct. Mm -hmm. So they're both right. Um, earlier in the scene, Angela says, if you want to save yourself, give Tommy up. That is correct. And she says, wait a minute. I don't have to give him up. You're a fucking ghost. And she's right. So they're both right. And then the third thing that's super important about this scene is that I really like the idea of male spaces because I've worked in so many male spaces. And Angela's office is a male space. So they won't let her talk to, to Holly. That whole day that they have Holly in interrogation, she's not allowed anywhere near it. She's excluded as a female. But when Holly says, I got to go to the bathroom, Angela's like, I got it. This is a female space. I'm headed into the female space. So she corners it. And we have the, what I like to call the most impactful meeting in the ladies' room that you could have on this show. Um, so I think that those are things that I'm really proud of in terms of our construction. Now let's talk. A, uh, let's talk a little bit about construction because you know, as, as I just said, the show is so crafted. Talk a little bit about how you put together a season. Oh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, my philosophy, and we're doing this right now. We just opened our. Um, uh, our oh wow! Okay, oh, we opened a writers' room. Um, but uh, soundtrack. Music. Yeah, exactly. Um, we talk about theme first. We talk about theme first. The theme of the season. And then uh, after we talk about theme, we go in and we blue sky, what are the cool things that we want to see? Little fun stuff that we want to see. Um, and then we talk about what we owe. What do we owe the audience from the season prior? Um, so for example, going from season two into season three, one of the things we knew we owed was how did Mike and Lobos start working together. What is that relationship? Like we learn at the end of season two that Mike is working for Lobos, but why, how, what happened? So we know we have to do that. Um, and then the next thing that we do is we start to put together the, the, the arcs for each character having to do with theme. So uh, season three is be careful what you wish for. So we went through and was like, what's Ghosts? Be careful what, what you wish for. What's Angela's? What's Tommy's? What's Tasha's? And we go through and we make sure that those all line up. Um, and what are the beats that would correspond to that? And then the next thing that we do is we start to uh, put together arc documents for each character. Um, once we put together those arc documents, um, or we have some idea of where those beats are, then we start to break them down by episode. And then, once we've broken those down by episode, we look at the episodes and we go, how is this episode about the theme? How is this episode about be careful what you wish for? How is each scene within this episode about be careful what you wish for? How are we hitting that theme in every single scene? How are we hitting that as, on a global level in every episode? Um, then the, the network comes <laughs> and we pitch them the season and then they give us some notes 
and we start writing the episode. Now, what's that process like of pitching then the season? Um, I get up in front of the room, and I basically make um, an opening argument. Legal procedural. Legal procedural. I basically say, here's what, you know, they've gotten the documents beforehand. So they've read those documents, and they know what the beats are, some of them, but they don't know where, how they lay out. Um, I feel like there are a lot of showrunners who think that the network is your, um, is your adversary. I don't think so. I think if you let them know as much in advance as possible, you make them feel safe, then they know what they're getting. Um, when you get a box of Kleenex, you expect there to be Kleenex in the box. I feel like that, and that's a satisfying feeling. I feel you like feel that that also th th that allows them then to contribute in a more positive fashion Absolutely. as opposed to adversarial. Absolutely, I, the most adversarial moments I've had at Stars have always been the least productive. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I want to bring them into the process. The other thing about bringing them into pr the process strategically is it allows me to say no to the things I really don't want to do because I've said yes to so many other things. If you say no out of hand to most stuff, I mean, you're just setting yourself up to be the showrunner they want to remove mm -hmm. um, as opposed uh, to making yourself a collaborative partner. Um, and also, I'm fully aware that I don't know everything. I don't know everything. It's a rare trait among showrunners. Well, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I, I've learned that the hard way. I don't know everything. So it's, it's nice to have that feedback. Um, so that, that pitch is me standing up uh, and talking for about three or four hours. Uh, season two was four hours, and I was wearing these very high, high heels. Bad call. Um, afterward, I could barely walk. Uh, luckily enough, we are around the corner from Mission Cantina, and there was alcohol. Um, but that's, that's, how we, how, that's how we craft the season. And then what's the process after that meeting? Do you get further notes from them, or, or do you get it, it, do things start really coming into place? Yeah, we get, we get more notes, um, and then we talk more, and then we go in and break the individual episodes. What do you think about notes? I mean, you know, you talked about the engagement. But, you know, one of the things in the early years of Netflix original programming, people mm -hmm. used to brag, like, oh, they never do anything. They, just, they don't send us any notes. And I've heard from people, uh, showrunners, broadcast streaming, some say, I love that idea. And some people say, you know what? I got to tell you, we would have cast the wrong guy if this VP of so-and-so hadn't mentioned someone else in the room at the time. So how, does it, how do you feel about it? Um, I feel like I'm um, – I learned from Greg Berlanti mm -hmm. that if you listen carefully to the notes, it may not, their solution may be wrong, but the note behind the note is probably something that you should address, if only because this person on the other end of the phone is the most familiar with your show outside of the writers in the writer's room mm -hmm. and maybe your actors. So they're your first audience. Um, notes can be helpful in that way. I think I'm very lucky because most of my notes, or many of them, come from the actual boss, from the CEO. So there isn't someone coming behind him to say, well, no, 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 I don't agree with that note, mm -hmm. right? I think a lot of times people get stuck in either the studio and the network don't want the same show. That happens with a lot of showrunners. Or you've got an overzealous, lower-level executive who's giving you way too many notes to establish his or her um, relevancy in the process. You mean territorial pissing. Territorial pissing, for sure. I don't have a lot of that at Stars. They're too small a shop. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to give you copious, uh, useless notes. They just don't have time. So I'm really lucky in that way. Um, and I think that, uh, so that's all true. And then I think, you know, Chris is a really smart guy, and his notes tend to be really smart. Um, I have disagreed with some of them, like the Greg and Angela note that I talked to you guys about. But some of them have just been really amazing, and so I was glad I heard them. And I'm glad to take credit for them. <laughs> uh, when people say, I love this about the show, um, I tend to give him credit. But I think that it's... Um, 
I've been very fortunate in that working relationship with, uh, with Chris and with Carmi and Ken Segna. You talked about um, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Sure. One of the things about power that I find, as, as someone who grew up in New York City, you know, and, and I grew up in New York City. If you guys remember the movie Escape from New York? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a fucking documentary when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. um, when I saw Wild Style, I was like, so you got the nice New York. That's yeah, not the yeah. one I know. Yeah. But, you know, power feels so much of its time in that city, in that city that changes all the time, whether you want to call it disnified or not. How do you keep that? How do you get that? How do you en- encapsulate that, that spirit of the city? Because it feels like you're listening to it. Well, I'm madly in love with New York. I'm from Connecticut. I grew up coming into the city um, on the Metro North train. Um, anybody from Fairfield County out here? What's up? Okay. So, um, you say you're not funny, but that's like that's what every comedian does, right? Like, <laughs> no. no. Oh my God! You know the difference between black people and white people? No, I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, my mother-in-law. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, take my wife, please. Uh, so, um, you came in on the train. Yes, I came in on the train. Thank you. My dad commuted into the city every day, and going to New York was magical. Uh, I thought New York was was basically, you know, was magic. And then I lived there for a while. Um, when I was, uh, I had a transformative experience when I saw Spike Lee's Inside Man. Mm-hmm. That movie is an, a love letter to New York in a very specific way. I mean, the, the 25th hour also, but I, the, the, but for me, Inside Man, I, it just, I don't know, it changed the way that I felt. B- living here in L.A., I was like, oh, no, I need to go home. Like, I, a soul feeling happened when I saw that movie. And, um... I always wanted to, to do that. So power is a love letter to New York. It's a love letter to New York as it really is. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it's as dirty and grimy and clean and sexy and stylish as New York is. And Spanish. And Spanish. Um, and this year, uh, season three, there's Korean. And like we just try to keep it uh, fresh. Um, but the other thing that I'll say is that may get harder. Because the first season, nobody knew who we were. Mm-hmm. The second season, people kind of knew who we were. The third season, we were starting to have a little bit of a crowd problem as we were shooting. So now we're going to have to be a little bit more circumspect about where we shoot, which will take away a little bit of the grit. You know, that we could really go into the hood and just shoot, and it was fine. And now we may have to change that a little bit. But that's what we see on screen. But a lot of what I think about is, is what we hear. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it feels like you, you, it feels like you get your, I don't know, your writing rooms on the A train sometimes, you know? Uh, well, I definitely tell my writers, um, or I shouldn't say my writers, my, my team, but younger writers, I say to learn dialogue by listening. Like, don't make up your dialogue. Go to Starbucks and just listen to people talk. Um, if you're fortunate enough to be in New York, go and listen to people talk. Go get on the bus, get on the subway, listen to people talk. Don't make it up. Um, I had hours and hours and hours of listening to 50 on the phone. And he speaks about 400 different languages having to do with what he's doing at the time. So he speaks businessman or he speaks rapper or he speaks whatever he might do. And I listened to all of them. And so I was able to go, oh, that one's Ghost. Mm-hmm. That one's James. You know, there are you know, different kinds. And just listen. Journalism, again, mm-hmm. taking yourself out of the equation and, you know, asking why and hearing people talk. Um, if you want to write something about a specific area, it's not just enough to go there or to do research. Go and listen to how people talk. If I read a pilot that's set in the Midwest and someone says soda, I say, you didn't go listen. They mm-hmm. say pop. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you didn't listen, and, it, and, it's, and I can tell you didn't listen. So sometimes, I mean, I'm not authentic. At, I'm doing research, but the research is important. 
Well, I don't think it's a question of authenticity. I mean, that's, you know, authenticity like credibility is, is in the eye of the beholder. But I think it's something that if it sounds and feels real, it often is. My greatest compliment is when someone from New York says, man, I know that, I felt that, I, I, I loved that, I enjoyed that. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the scene we did in episode 102, Under the Whale, in the Natural History Museum, which is a very difficult location to get. Mm. And it's not just about the fact that we got the location and I wanted that romance, it's that if you grew up in the tri-state area, you went on that field trip. Mm -hmm. So when I say we were on that field trip and they talk about, oh, they had to sit in alphabetical order and like lunch and getting caught in the stairwell making out. It's Do all not touch the dinosaur. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's all very specific. So you grew up in New York, you went on that field trip, you know what I mean? I used to hide out in there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's dark and cool, and when it's in the summer, like that's one of the few places to go. It's not really hot. So, um, you know, I, those are the things that, are, that come for me about making something feel credible, to use your word, and authentic. So, so let's, we have another clip. Now, okay, this sure. is a longer clip. And I think, do you want to do a little bit of a setup on this? Because it really, it, it, it hits a moment, and you've talked about it with the, with the characters and who they are, and don't tell me to jump. Oh, okay. So, uh, this is a clip. Um, for those of you who don't watch the show. Are any of you here who don't watch the show? Okay. Okay, there's an app for that, okay? Yeah. <laughs> there is, actually. There is. The there Stars, Stars app. app. Stars yeah. app. Download capability. Um, but I would say that, uh, okay, so this, this scene is between Ghost and Tasha. And... Uh, Tasha has just picked him up from uh, a precinct where he was pulled over for uh, DUI, or DWI as it's called in New York. And um, she has seen in person for the second time his mistress, but his mistress was there to see him as far as she is concerned. Um, and she's really confronted with this incredibly devastating reality of this relationship. Uh, so there's that, her eyewitnessing of the relationship. But there's also the fact that even though the two people are talking about his mistress, the marital partnership is still intact. So what you see in this clip is Tasha, this character, go from serious, deep emotional heartbreak into strategy. And she switches on a dime because she's a survivor. Um, so that's very important. And then the second thing is it includes one of my favorite lines of the show ever. So here we go. Why her? No, seriously. Why her? I've known Angela since we were kids. Never thought I'd see her again. And she came to the club one night. Wait, so, wait, the fuck? So... You broke up our entire family over a chick from high school? I'm telling you, I never got over her. What the fuck was I? Good enough? What? So would you settle for me? It's not like that. It's exactly like that. Now I see. Now I see why you couldn't leave her alone. It's not the only reason. Angela is a U.S. attorney. She's a federal prosecutor, specifically drug crimes. And now she's fucking close to arresting Tommy. Hush! Hush! She's gonna arrest Tommy. This bitch you brought in our lives is a fucking cop. I stayed in it. I took her to Miami. 
to watch her, figure out what she knows. I'm telling you now, because her investigation is ramping up. She started to pull away from me. No, she hasn't. I saw the way she looked at you tonight. She loves you. She fucking loves you. I saw the way you looked at her, too. I love her right back. You know, even after she gets Tommy, she's gonna come for you. And me. What's gonna happen to the kids when we go to jail, Ghost? Huh? Have you thought about that? I thought about everything. I gotta figure out my next move. Keep fucking her. What? Huh? Tasha, I don't know that's an option. Oh, I saw the bitch. Trust me, it's an option. This thing between you two is, it's gonna work in our favor. You're gonna, no, we're gonna figure out how to protect our business, how to protect our family. She loves you, so she will protect you. She's probably already protecting you in ways you don't even know. So you need to keep her happy. You keep fucking your bitch until I tell you to stop. Now I wonder what line you liked. Um, so that, again, to go to construction, right? We always knew that we had set up that Ghost, um, that Tasha was going to find out about the relationship, but she actually found out about the relationship in season one. This is season two. So it was actually about when is she going to confront Ghost? And then this happens and the confrontation comes, you know, it just comes organically and naturally. But you get to see both sides of Tasha. And I mean, Omari Hardwick and uh, Naturi Naughton are so amazing in this scene. But for Naturi, uh, I think it was, she was like, oh, I finally get to be angry, you know? And I think that that was something that was so important because she actually w had really womaned up and taken it for quite some time. This is episode 206, so she'd been living with it for, for some time. Um, and I thought that was nice, and it was nice to give her a little bit of the power in the scene. The power in the scene, the dynamic shifts. Why her, she says brokenhearted. All right, fine, it's her. Then keep fucking that bitch mm -hmm. till I tell you to stop, because this is now about us and how we're gonna do this thing. But see, that's one of the things I think that's so much what about power is. I mean, power, the backdrop that you guys have, and there's no disrespect, could be changed in many ways. But these characters and the relationships, because that's how a marriage, that's how a relationship talks. Once you, and I hate to use a business term, but it's the one that's best, once you invest, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard. You got a couple of kids, you know, it's hard to walk away. Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna walk away, what's that, what's that fallout gonna be? That, it's a show that's rare that you see a show allow that to happen, allow that to be explored, and not allow it to be solved in the first 59 minutes. Well, one thing we talk about all the, all the time on the show is the banal and then the power. So it's very banal that a man would be cheating on his wife. That's like so obvious and there and basic. And what The thing that makes it power is that the woman he's cheating with is a federal prosecutor and he happens to be a drug dealer. That's what makes it power. So we spend a lot of time doing very, very specific 
storylines that you have seen somewhere else or that feel natural that people understand and then we add the power spin on it so you know for example um, I'll give you another one sometimes people have a hectic day they have too many things to do they're overwhelmed we did that in episode 205 they make a bad decision so ghost is making bad decisions all day because he's so overwhelmed um, and then and people are getting the best of him and getting the best of him and he's making bad decisions and by the end of the day he's just so overwhelmed that he says Tommy I you know we should just we should just kill Vladimir and, and Tommy says no we're gonna do this other thing well later on in the series you will see that the other thing that Tommy did because Ghost was not in his right mind and Tommy was at that moment will have a problem will present a problem for them later if Ghost had been together that might not have happened that's real it just so happens that it's like you know drugs and shooting people and all those things you know Legal procedural. Legal procedural, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we're not going to give away any spoilers about season three, but nope. what are some of the things that you – are we going to see more of seeds that were planted in episode 202? We're going to see them bloom in episode 308. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so. That uh, that's one. I think that's one of the power strategies. Yeah, our, our tropes are definitely that. I, I think um, if you've been playing along, you will be very – pleased because you will be like oh yeah I knew that or I saw that coming or I knew I know that person we bring some characters back that you haven't seen in a season so that's kind of satisfying and um, I think you know uh, the wages of sin um, you know the, the cost is high so we have two characters that are uh, lying to each other at the end of season two, Ghost and Angela, and they're both going, oh yeah, honey, everything's fine. Uh, Greg's not hiding out in the basement trying to kill me, and uh, you know, I didn't get this like blood-stained card. I'm cool, let's have dinner, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I think, you know, obviously, those things will have to pay off. For a little bit of payoff for people in the room, we're gonna wanna take some questions from you guys now. Uh, I believe that there are microphones around, yes? Yes. No? Ah, yes. It's not magic. It's like television. You say it and it happens. So let's just, well, you were late, so you're going to wait. <laughs> and you already got to ask a question earlier. Ah. Who else do we have? There's a lady here at the back. Can we get a microphone to her, please? Or you can just be like me and bellow, you know. Thank you so much for this. And also, thank you for creating a show that makes me want to run to my TV to watch in real time. Oh, I'm <laughs> so glad. Thank you. Please keep doing that. And admit you are not a plant. I am not a plant. I'm not a plant. My question for you is actually a follow-up question. You said you wanted to talk about the experience of leaving Bernie Mac. And I was wondering if you could talk about oh, that. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so a couple things. Um, this is actually a good story for anybody who's a staff writer or trying to be a staff writer, um, which is you come in and you don't know exactly where you fit in on that staff. And people will tell you, you know, listen more than you talk, you know, do all those things. Um, if you're really good at it, uh, people will be threatened um, because they don't want you, and I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but I had two, there were two story editors there who were a writing team um, who really didn't like me and I couldn't win them over. And it turned out that they had the ear of someone in power and I ended up getting kicked out on my butt um, because, you know, honestly they didn't like me. And I, I didn't know how to play politics because I was a very naive person and I thought that merit was what mattered. So if I worked hard enough, I would succeed. That is not the case in a writer's room all the time. Sometimes you really... You've been to America. I've been to America. <laughs> I have. And, but television writer's rooms can be very treacherous because, specifically, we're a bunch of writers. We're all insecure. And I came into the, the system there um, off of a spec. 
So they heard the same story that you guys did, which is, oh, so this girl came in, she wrote a spec, and they hired her. Great. Fantastic. It was a big staff. People were fighting for scripts. They gave me a script. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of things that were um, not great elements uh, of that experience. But the other thing is, it was a completely legit firing. I wasn't funny. And I mean, I really stress that. Like, looking back now, I wasn't funny. The thing that I had, or I wasn't funny enough to keep a job on a comedy. I was conversationally funny, which is not the same thing as being structurally funny. Um, that doesn't mean I can, I can necessarily break an episode of TV that has to escalate, escalate, escalate in laughs. You know, that's really hard. I didn't know how to do that. What I knew how to do was go, that story doesn't make sense. Well, that's great, because I have a really good story sense. Fantastic. That's my skill. I use that in drama. Now you get to turn. <laughs> Wondering, I, I'm just curious. You have this idea, and uh, you're presenting it to people as a showrunner. What are your What are your responsibilities, and what do you have in terms of tangible stuff? And what are you sending to these people that are listening to you? I'm sorry. It's, are you asking me when you go and pitch? What do I have? Well, as a showrunner, that's I'm, the index cards. I, but the responsibilities of a showrunner. The responsibilities of a showrunner when you're pitching or when you're in the process of running the show? Process of running the show and oh how much God. influence, how, what, what did it take and in terms of what you did in the past, how much influence did that have? You know, you did a lot of great shows. Um, do you mind if I do a summary of what I think is the question? Yeah, I, I can't follow <laughs> the question. Uh, what I think uh, the, the, the gentleman is asking, and I think it's a very good question, is, is it really it's a lessons learned. You know, this was your, Power was your showrunner debut. Yeah. There, there was, I you, never you came into this before. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it and lesson, things that you learned inside and outside, including in this room. Coming into that mm -hmm. as a showrunner, what lessons did you learn once it actually started? Well, um, I guess the first thing is that um, you need spiritual grounding. Whatever your spiritual thing is, whatever you do, um, you cannot be in the religion of I will succeed. It's a bad religion. Um, it doesn't, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm quoting Frank Ocean. But it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's just not good. very good that you cop to yeah, it, by yeah, the way. Exactly. <laughs> but it just, it, if you're trying to, to worship at the god of, I will really be good at this, you are so screwed. Um, I, you know, I, again, I, remaining teachable and going, I don't know how to do that. Walk me through that. I don't understand. Knowing, I think I was very lucky that I knew that um, I wanted my department heads when I was in production to feel supported and not feel like I was going to micromanage them. Because at the end of the day, I am the head of a department, which is I am head of the writing department. There are a lot of other people who can do a lot of other things, but that writing is my job. Um, if it's not a, another Berlantiism, but it's true. If it's wrong on the board, it'll be wrong on the outline. If it's wrong on the outline, it'll be wrong in the script. If it's wrong in the script, it'll be wrong on stage. If it's wrong on stage, it'll be wrong in the cut, and then it's too late to fix it. <laughs> so you better fix it when it's on the board if you can. Um, and so that's my job. No one else from any other department is coming in to fix it. Uh, it all has to start with the writing. So I guess I think for a lot, you know, a lot of people, when we talk, because especially in this, a this era of television, showrunners have become a little demigodish, you know? And there's this idea that it's like, uh, oh, you're just this master string puller that's getting everything done all the time. How do you ever sleep, et cetera, et cetera? I don't sleep a lot. Um, I have found that weeping openly in my car... <laughs> 
is very helpful. Hold on, that was on Bernie Mac. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think that it's it's not uh, it's not a dream job. It's just not a dream job. I am very fortunate. I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful. Um, I think I'm good at it. Um, but when I see someone who is a career co-EP, sometimes I go, yeah, man, you figured that out. You know? Um, I, I do, and it's, it's, not, um, it's not totally you know, popular to say, but it is something that I say, um, which is that parenting is not compatible with show running. They're not compatible. Um, you might do them both at the same time, which I do, but they are not compatible. Um, if you are a man and you have a stay-at-home wife and she is okay staying home and taking on the, the brunt of that, if you are, and those are very traditional, like sort of heteronormative roles and you're okay with the heteronormative roles and that's what you guys have signed up for, I've seen it work for those people. Um, I have not seen it work necessarily that well in the reverse mm -hmm. in terms of gender. I have not seen it work necessarily that well um, in same-sex couples unless that conversation has been had. Mm -hmm. That's just been my experience. Is that, that because you think those, uh, in some senses, because the traditional role has been, use the word traditional, that's been the norm, new, new roles, new genders, new sexual orientations in this job, they have to discover them. I think that there's uh, relationships now that work well, generally have a lot of parity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think unless everyone has seeded a certain level of parity in the relationship, because this job eats your life, and you are gone, and in my case, I'm gone six months out of the year, mm -hmm. um, I think that there is definitely something to be said for the fact that you've got to figure out how you're going to make your family life work. Mm -hmm. That is a lesson. Um, spirituality, family life, friends. My friends, the first season I was in uh, New York, I didn't talk to any of my friends, I was so busy. Mm -hmm. My friends here, I barely saw my friends in New York, but I didn't see my friends here, and you need that, you need them. Um, so, you know, I'm saying all of that to say that uh, the lessons I've learned are not necessarily the ones that I would, the ones I would want to communicate to you guys are not necessarily the ones about the show running. Like, make sure you have this amount of people who do this kind of thing, or make sure that you approve the sets before you build. Eh. Make sure that your spirituality, your family, and your primary relationship are all together, and that you know what to expect, and then those things are, that, that's going to support you and help you, so that when you make the mistake about how many standing sets you need, you have somebody to call and say, man, I really screwed that up. Um, yes? Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about the construction? Oh, thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the construction of Kanan? Um, I think he's one of the most, uh, one of the scariest characters I've ever seen. I've, I told you that at the Directors Guild. Um, where, how do you go so deep to find such sinister things for him to do? <laughs> <laughs> Are these based on certain long conversations? Um, <laughs> the truth of the matter is that 50 said to me, I want to be the worst character on TV. And I said, oh, I got that for your ass. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry about it to the people who haven't watched the show, but uh, he does something pretty ghastly toward the end of season two. And he was like, okay, well, that's awful. And I was like, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And I actually found a way for him to do something even more awful in season three. <laughs> it's in her episode. This is Sophia Deary, by the way, who is one of my writers. And uh, 
and, um, and, is it really awful? Is it that awful? Like scale of one to ten, awful. With the Holocaust being ten. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to talk awful. No, no, I mean that it's 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 not on that scale, um, but but it's pretty bad. Um, and in terms of that construction, um, what we wanted was a character who was a, a threat but who also was really understandable and relatable. He's actually not the villain. Ghost put him in jail. Ghost sent him to jail. Ghost betrayed him and then took his son. Like, actually, Ghost is the bad guy. And that's one of the things that we talk about all the time is that the villain of the piece is Ghost. He's the villain. He's the one who's breaking his wife's heart over here. And you know what I mean? He, it's him. That's not Kanan. We just, we just Kanan is, is really scary. We wanted that. The other thing is that 50 himself as an actor is very intense. And also his physicality. He's so big that he fills up the screen in a certain way. So when we introduced the character in episode 103, we did the hero shot, we put the camera low, and we allowed him to step into the shot and fill up the whole screen. Mm -hmm. And so we, we actually taught the audience with visual language to be afraid of him. You know, it's, we said, this is the person to fear. He's motivated by revenge. Um, no. Ten years in prison is not revenge? Uh, I think that the Kanan character is way more complicated than revenge. Okay. I think that, the, that at the end of the day, he wants to be chosen. Mm. And I think that that's where I write him from. I write him from a place of he wants to be chosen. Now, the thing is, when Ghost sent him to jail, obviously he wasn't choosing Kanan. Mm -hmm. So there is a betrayal there, but I, he wants to be chosen. Okay. Ma'am? Wow, you got two mics coming at you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so I wanted to know, was your Bernie Mac spec like your first script? Like how many scripts did you get? Wow, we're really on Bernie Mac land <laughs> now, aren't we? <laughs> and like, <laughs> if, you're, if you like, did you know that you weren't funny at the point? Like why did you pick, <laughs> what, like I'm just curious, why did you pick Bernie Mac of, as the show to, like how did you get in the room with them? It's just, it's all related. Okay, um, I came in with two comedy writers, like I said, Albergini and Chesler, who were uh, comedy guys. So I came now run awkward. Whatever, now run awkward. Um, and so they, you know, comedy was the way in for me because I came in with them. Um, Bernie was a show that I watched and a show that I understood. I had been a rich black kid, right? So I knew how to write that and from coming from an el very elementary place. It was it was very relatable to me. Um, my spec script was good. It was me in the writer's room that didn't work. So they hired me off the spec and my ideas. The spec was good. That was not the problem. I wasn't not funny on paper. I was not funny. In, uh, how many of you do comedy? How many of you have been in a comedy writer's room? You have to be funny on command. That's it. And play well with others. And play well. And that and those two, are the Venn diagram of that is like six people. Yeah, well, exa exactly. Exactly. So, so, uh, and, and six, people, six people on a lot of medication. Six, Word. <laughs> so, so um, n no, I did not know I was not funny. Uh, no, I mean, uh, but I mean that seriously. The thing that I did not know was how to play politics. I wasn't so not funny that I couldn't have stayed there. I just had bet other skills that were better suited to a place where I didn't have to be funny on command. I guess, you know, for a lot of people that, 
entry point is always the mystique, you know, because because there there is at least it feels like often in this industry many others if you know someone. You know, like, oh, I went to school with a guy whose dad works here. He works at WME, and he said, oh, you're funny. Maybe we can get you a spec script and pass it to someone, et cetera, et cetera. Your way in was, was different, obviously, from a journalism to, to a show that didn't happen, but a relationship that continued, yeah. relationships that continued. I, for What would you say to people who are trying to pound against that door and just trying to find a way in? Well, the first thing I would say is write spec scripts, damn it. Stop working on your pilot. <laughs> Stop it. Just but, stop it. And, like, and how would you say to people to choose a spec script? Like, uh, for instance, I know someone who, who now is on a show, by the way, and he wrote a West Wing spec, spec script because he's like, I love that show. I know that that's show. That's genius. I know, how to, genius. I know where the show exists, and I'm going to write the West Wing episode that was never made. Absolutely. Listen, um, two of my mentors, two guys I worked with, Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, they wrote a spec survivor, and that got them on w back in the day. I just... I don't particularly, I know you have to have a pilot. I know you have to have that now. I'm not ignoring that. But I'm saying if you write yourself a tight spec, people will respect that. You will get into the room. Um, I, I just, I, that's for me, that would be the number one thing. The second thing is I see so many people online being like, girl, I want to start my own show just like you. I want to have a show, my own show just like you. I didn't have my own show when I showed up. <laughs> there was not a two in the front of my number when they gave me the show, when they said the green light. I was a 30-something. I'm 39 now. I was 36 then. Um, that isn't to say that I wasn't young, as showrunners go, but it is to say that I've been working for 10 years in the business. It wasn't overnight. I think people are so obsessed with success now that they think that it can just happen. That's not well, how it happens. Also, there's also the mythology, you know? Oh, so-and-so did a couple of things on YouTube. It got picked up. Suddenly, they've got a show on network. Totally. And then the person they bring in to showrun that show gets rid of that person in 48 hours, right? <laughs> um, what I would say is get coffee, man. Get coffee. Like, I, when people come to me and they say, how did you get in? Well, I started in journalism, but I started as an editorial assistant mm -hmm. at Mademoiselle, and I got coffee, <laughs> and I got lunch, and I, and I, you know, it's like all those things are super important, you know, that teach you humility, um, you know, and, and to be, you know, to be in that place. That's my advice, and unfortunately, it's not the advice that people want to hear. They want to hear, what are the steps I have to take to get in? But I'm saying... You know, I promote, okay? So I promote from the, from the bottom down at my show, which means that, you know, uh, Sophia, who is uh, the writer of episode 307, 307? Sophia was my writer's assistant my first year. Um, I promote up, and that is, uh, so you have to come in and be an assistant in my show. You have to grow with the show. That's how I feel about it. I rarely hire writers just from the outside world because you know I don't that's just me I think that that hard work should be rewarded with promotion are you all good with that <laughs> <laughs> sir hi to the good wife I find cool. that one of the smartest shows on TV and what did you learn from your time there so much. Okay, I'll make it quick. You um, have to make it quick. Are you in a hurry? Uh, well, I have to be somewhere at nine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, but okay. What did I learn from The Good Wife? Number one, I learned how to run a writer's room. I, I, but toward the end, I ran it. I ran the writer's room. Uh, nominally. I mean, the very smart people in there. So it wasn't like I was herding cats. 
But um, I, I learned to anticipate what Robert King would want. So I learned to anticipate the needs of a voice that was not my own. Um, that's a very important skill. Again, that, has to, that goes back to the don't just write your damn pilot, write a spec script. Learn how to prioritize someone else's needs first. The worst moments I have with writers on my show and in general is when people say, but I wanted it to be this way. Well, I get that you wanted it to be that way, but at the end of the day, I have to believe in it for it to go out the door. Um, that's true on every show, and I've worked for a lot of showrunners. At the end of the day, the showrunner has to be satisfied with it, or it's not going anywhere. That's just the way the construction is. Um, so I learned that. I learned um, to. Uh, I learned really how to construct a legal story in a specific way that had to do with emotion. Um, I learned to build a proxy. Uh, this is something that Robert King taught me that I had never heard of before. We didn't have Chris Noth for all episodes produced. We, he, you know, he had, he was like probably 10 the first season. So we had to figure out, um, we had to figure out a way to keep his story going without, uh, without him being in the episodes. So we created this character that Alan Cumming plays and that character became Peter's proxy. So we could keep Peter's story going by still having, and that character's name is Eli Gold. And Eli was my character payment. I came, like, I was my episode that we birthed him in, and I was taught very, like, I was taught how to proxy. So the first season of Power, you'll see that Tommy is actually Ghost's proxy. They come up with a plan, and then Tommy goes and executes it. Because I couldn't have Omari in every single scene. It just didn't make sense. We couldn't do, do that. And that was another thing I learned there after three years. You can't put Juliana in every scene. She's got to have a day off. <laughs> so you can't just tell the story with just one character. Um, so those were some things that I really learned. Um, and then I think I also learned uh, Robert is really intent on realism. You know, he would always say, "Lo, let's just say Bitcoin. Let's just say Hellman's. Let's just, you know, he was really, you know, uh, adamant about those things. And now I find myself being that way, uh, definitely. So if, if that helps. And then construction, 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 construction. The Good Wife is an, is an elaborately constructed show down to the, the very, you know, scintilla. And uh, power is the same way. There's a lady in the green sweater back there. Sorry. Double Hello. Mics. Uh, hi, um, I'm Kanisha. Um, I know. I saw you at Paley Center. You were great. Uh, uh, my question is, I love that you've been talking about rhythm, rhythm on it, like the rhythm of a character's language when you listen to 50 Cent and how that, how their language changes by listening to people speak uh -huh. and also how each show had its own rhythm or, or tone that you needed to capture. So I wondered if you could talk more about either in the characters of your show or switching from show to show, how you capture that on the page. Well, one thing I'll talk about with The Good Wife, just to go back to um, our young man's question here, Alicia, the first episode didn't talk, first season didn't talk much. We would joke in the writer's room, we would call it off eyebrows, because we would go to her, she wouldn't say anything, something would happen, and then the camera would be on her, and she'd go, and we'd go, oh shit, or she'd go, you know? Um, but much more subtly, because Juliana's a good actress, and I'm not. Uh, I never saw that season of The Good Wife. <laughs> okay, but uh, my, uh, in terms of uh, how we write the characters, uh, this is, it's actually quite, it's really specific. So um, Angela, for example, on the show, she has two different languages. There's a language she speaks when she's with Ghost or with her sister, and there's the language she speaks at work. Um, there, and that's about passing also. 
uh, with Tasha, Tasha only speaks one language. Tommy only speaks one language. Those things are really important to us because those characters are the characters that represent the status quo, or at least did in the first season. However, and we see that when Tommy is like, someone says something to him in Spanish, and he's like, what? What did you say? Because he isn't adaptable in that way. Um, Tasha can clean it up to be, you know, in, uh, in public, but she's sort of specifically that. But we created the Lakeisha character to make sure that the fully ratchet is always represented <laughs> so that Tasha can live in that space of being, having been Pygmalioned by Ghost. She's changed. She's elevated her just a little bit. So she knows how to act. Um, Lakeisha kind of doesn't, but you can tell that they're from the same place. Um, Naturi's actually from New Jersey, so we, I did ask her to listen to Mary J. Blige a lot, to listen to Mary J.'s um, interviews a lot, to sound a little bit more like that rather than to sound like she's from New Jersey. Um, uh, Lala Anthony, who plays Lakeisha, is actually from the area where they should be, so she just talks and it's fine. Joseph Shakura is... Um, Joseph Shakur is doing an accent. He's from Chicago. Uh, but to talk about syntax and writing, Tommy has a very specific style. And one note that I got from Stars once is I had another character say nope. And they were like, um, isn't that a Tommy word? And I was a little annoyed because it's really a Courtney word. I say nope all the time. <laughs> but they were right. That's how the character talks. He says nope and then shoots somebody. Um, <laughs> So I hope that answers your question. Season three spoiler. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tommy's never killed anyone. Yeah. Question for you. Oh, sorry. Do you have a question? No. Oh, microphone lady. I don't, I don't need a mic. I'm very loud. Hi. Thank you for being, oh, thank you for being here. Um, my question for you specifically is as an actress, writer, producer, um, next to my, also my friend and Denise next to us is, um, how did you go about process of casting for your lead roles? Because some of them are not very well known to us as an audience out there. I mean, I know they've done some independent features and I've, I've watched most of their work. But how did you go about casting them, spe specifically Ghost? Well, the, the casting process... The casting process is... Um, it was interesting at Stars because they don't they don't really they used to say we make stars we don't hire stars so they were really interested in not having that um, and then uh, I made a binder for them because when they were thinking about taking the show on they didn't know how to cast it that's something that you'll find when you are in the diverse space that people will say I don't know how to cast it um, and so I made a binder I made a really big binder of a bunch of different choices and different people that might be appropriate for the roles um, if you go I still have that binder and if you go and look in the binder the first person on top of the binder is Omari Hardwick now I was very lucky because I got to hire the you know my first choice uh, Omari is a very interesting mix of being very smart being physical and therefore somewhat threatening and also having the ability to do kind of street and boardroom. Um, as we auditioned more and more people, we saw a lot of people. We saw a lot of household names for Ghost. We saw a lot of people who you wouldn't expect. One of the best auditions for Ghost I saw was Boris Kojo. He killed that audition. And I know when I say that, people are always like, really, Boris? But the thing is, Boris looks a certain way. So he's always cast a certain way. Um, there's a story that's maybe apocryphal, but Steve McPherson, when he was casting Lost, they cast Matthew Fox instead of John Hamm because he said, well, that guy's never going to be a star. <laughs> now, that's it could be apocryphal. I really don't know. But John Hamm is very handsome. 
he's very handsome and he may have been someone who had, had to wait until he was 40 plus in order to sort of get on. I think in the case of, of Boris is a person who had studied for that audition, knew it, and has a lot of actual range, but no one will ever believe that because of how he looks. In Omari's case, he's very handsome and very sexy and all those things, but he's also clearly super intelligent and you didn't know enough about him to not believe him. You sort of had seen him before vaguely, but you didn't really know, and that's how that worked. Do you think? Do you, do you think that Star's idea, regardless of how true it is, because by the way, you do have one of the biggest rappers in the universe on your show. Uh huh. Um, do you think? Do you think that's a good idea? I don't. I think that. Um, I think in my case, I've been very lucky because all four of my leads are tremendously talented, like frighteningly so. Mm -hmm. They are amazing performers. Um, one of the great things about Naturi, I'll just say, is Naturi is an excellent comedian. She's amazing comedic timing. So she is able to deliver a very dramatic line like that in a way that makes your body go pop, you know what I mean? Um, they're all very, very talented, so I was lucky to find them. Um, and I was able to find them in that way as opposed to the offer only way, which does suck. I did get to audition everyone, so I was very fortunate in that way, and that's not usually how it happens. What I do think, though, uh, is that we suffered for not having any stars in the show because at first, the first season, because people didn't know about the show. If I say I have a new show coming out and Bill Macy is in it, that helps. You know what I mean? Even if it's someone and like... it didn't come from existing intellectual property. So it wasn't like, oh, Outlander. I read the book. It was right, great. exactly. Yeah. And I think that was... I was a little bit behind the eight ball with that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was a little bit behind the eight ball with that. I didn't have something that was easy. And at first, it was very hard for us to really book uh, people in those places that you need to get that mainstream exposure. You know, Naturi, a lot of people knew already because she was in 3LW and because she had played Little Kim in Notorious. Mm -hmm. But that's a very specific demographic that was aware of who she was. The average person, even if they had seen her on Mad Men or Playboy Club, they didn't remember her. Mm -hmm. um, and th those were things that we had to fight with. Well, thank you very much for this evening. Oh, sure. And thank you very much for coming. Thanks very much. <laughs>